You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community. I'm Franny Alani, and you're listening to Locally Sourced Science. In our last episode, we explored space with an interview about research on asteroid Bennu and learning about a remote learning experience called Shelter in Space. Today, we continue our astronomy theme with a story about research on Jupiter's atmosphere. You'll also hear about how local third graders are learning how to design and build simple engineering projects, including an astronaut lander. To start out, you'll hear Candace Limper's interview of Cornell graduate student Yori Aglamov. He is one of the authors on a recent paper published in Nature called Small Lightning Flashes from Shallow Electrical Storms on Jupiter. Yori discusses his research on Jupiter's atmosphere based on data being relayed to Earth from the Juno space probe. Later in the show, we present a conversation with Spencer Hill, a local third grade teacher who, after the local school shutdown, encouraged his students to learn to design and build simple engineering projects. Now, here is Candace Limper's interview of Cornell astronomy graduate student Yuri Aglamov. Hi everyone, my name is Candace Limper with Locally Source Science, and for this segment you will hear an interview with a scientist who studies Jupiter. Jupiter is a large planet that takes a human-built instrument about five years to reach. There's a lot that we do not know about this planet, but an enthusiastic fourth-year PhD student at Cornell University has made some exciting discoveries. Before diving into his research, he graciously starts an interview with background on Juno spacecraft. Like Galileo, this spacecraft was sent to Jupiter to collect data on this planet's lightning patterns. This instrument has allowed him to pursue research on Jupiter that resulted in his most recent publication titled Small Lightning Flashes from Shallow Electrical Storms on Jupiter. I'm Yuri Aglamov in astronomy, working with Professor Jonathan Lunin on the atmosphere of Jupiter. When Juno was sent to Jupiter as field, one of the major motivations was based on the problem of water. Uh, the previous major spacecraft to Jupiter was the Galileo spacecraft in the 90s. And in particular, it sent down the Galileo probe to measure the composition of Jupiter's atmosphere. And the Galileo probe gave reasonable answers for how abundant, you know, nitrogen, chlorine, uh, sulfur. But the thing that it was weird was that it found very little water. And uh, this was found to be because it went into an anomalous part of Jupiter, the five micron hotspot. And so Juno was sent to Jupiter with this giant microwave radiometer, which is this panel that's supposed to measure and has been measuring very well the microwave emission from Jupiter, which basically is a visible radiation that's stopped by the clouds. And the microwave uh, radiation allows us to see sort of deeper into the planet, far below the cloud level. And the clouds, I should note, position as both ammonia and water. And the general pre-Juno treatment was that you had a layer of ammonia clouds 
which are at a very cold temperature and sort of at Earth-like pressures, and then you open seven atmospheres. So that's sort of like Colorado-type air pressures. But then you also have the separate issue of water clouds that were at, you know, at much warmer Earth-like temperatures, but not very high pressures, but pressures like six atmospheres. The six atmospheres winds up sort of being the composition of what you're breathing. So it's kind of hard to compare when you're in a spacesuit. But one atmosphere is, what, it's 10 meters underwater or something. So yeah, I don't think six atmospheres would crush you. The problem is basically nitrogen and oxygen narcosis and all that. So the idea was to measure the abundance of water vapor below the water clouds. Because looking at clouds doesn't really do that well in telling you how much water there is because you have a lot of fine measurements. And then, but below the clouds, you should be able to use spectroscopy. And the assumption was that below the ammonia clouds, all the ammonia, it's hot enough that all the ammonia is ammonia vapor. And so it should be a constant abundance. Was a microwave radiometer found first, and this was the first big announcement from Juno that the really early one that completely was the sort of thing no one expected to find and that has a lot of people confused uh, still, is that uh, ammonia actually is variable a long way down. And because of that, it becomes very difficult to disentangle the ammonia signal from the water signal. So yeah, uh, to make a long story short, that's the starting point, that Jupiter don't have a constant high ammonia level in the atmosphere below this ammonia cloud level, you actually have a lot of variation. And so that was the first big news from Juno. There's a bunch of other things that Juno has found, uh, the core of Jupiter. Just real quickly, the Juno is like Galileo? No. Well, so it's, it's sort of fulfilling a similar function in some ways. Unlike Galileo, there's no probe that's going into the atmosphere. There's nothing that's going into uh, Jupiter. It's just orbiting, but it's also orbiting much closer than Galileo was. It has more modern instruments. But also, unlike Galileo, Galileo was also studying the moons of Jupiter, which are very interesting in their own right. Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Christo. Uh, whereas Juno is basically, it's, it's doing some measurements of the moons, but its intention was to be razor-focused on Jupiter itself. So Jupiter, Juno arrived just right about when I arrived to Cornell, and so it's the only outer system space probe that's currently active. The observations that are at the core of this paper and the whole question of lightning on Jupiter uh, right now are uh, by Heidi Becker at JPL. And this was using the Stellar Reference Unit, which was actually intended not as a science instrument, but to orient the spacecraft by uh, observing the position of stars. But Becker found a way to use the SRU to detect lightning flashes in Jupiter's atmosphere. And this is a method as compared to previous methods of detecting lightning because Galileo already detected lightning. And, but that was, uh, Galileo was much less sensitive but observed for longer periods of time. SRU has a very high sensitivity, but a very short observation time. And what the SRU found was a much higher rate of flashes, but the flashes themselves were much smaller, much weaker, 
and also smaller in physical area, which indicated that they're at high levels in the atmosphere, shallower than the ones at Galileo. What is the significance of detecting the shorter but more frequent lightning? Yeah, the small, smaller uh, flashes but more frequent and higher up in the atmosphere because you can see that because the light doesn't get scattered as much. Uh, and the significance, right, that's what we've, we've been doing, actually. And what Tristan Goyo and a bunch of, a number of other people have been trying to figure out why is this happening and what is the significance. So, okay, finally getting to the actual uh, stuff I've been working on for. The idea was to build a model for a relatively simple one-dimensional model of convection and of light generation. The original hope was to use this as a separate constraint on water models. But actually, the biggest constraint that we found is that you need to have to generate the lighting distribution that's consistent with observations that has both shallow lighting and deep light. You would actually expect the shallow lighting to be energetically weaker. But to have both, you need to have a situation where water remains liquid high up into the atmosphere, well below the freezing point. Because solid ice particles are not nearly as efficient at colliding and sticking together, and you need particle size differences for lighting. You can't have lightning when there's frozen things? The modeling basically showed that you need both, and because of that, you need to have liquid pretty high up. Okay, and then where the liquid was high up is where there was not as much ammonia? Yeah, so this was uh, the other observational result from Guyot, which was that there's a correlation between the regions where there's more lightning flashes in general, are the regions where there's less ammonia vapor. Now, if there's less ammonia vapor, then this indicates that the ammonia has to be in some other phase, which would have to be dissolved, well, which may be, for instance, dissolved in the liquid water droplets, which are the cloud droplets. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Locally Source Science. I am Candice Limper, and you are listening to an interview with a Cornell PhD student named Yora Yamov, studying ammonia in Jupiter's atmosphere. Guyot also did work to show, along with Andy Ingersoll at Caltech, to show basically something much more that involved dissolved ammonia. And because in equilibrium, ammonia should not be dissolving in water at the high temperatures. And so basically there's difficulties in chemistry that Tristan Guyot has also been looking at in terms of how do you get ammonia dissolved in water. Because, right, the basic problem is water needs to be liquid high up to generate lightning. Ammonia by itself will freeze just from vapor to solid and also that's just not very much of it. But if ammonia can dissolve into the water liquid, then it can serve as an antifreeze. And water alone freezes at zero Celsius. If you mix in ammonia, it can go down to negative, well, in the eutectic composition, there are some liquid down to negative 100 Celsius. And so the idea was that having liquid particles might allow more particle growth in high up in Jupiter's atmosphere and allow for lightning in that way. And that is what sort of our model shows is necessary, that we somehow need to have this ammonia in the water and that's furthermore supported by those other lines of evidence about not seeing ammonia vapor, basically. 
or not seeing a tabernacle. So not seeing ammonia vapor because ammonia is in the water? Yeah. Okay. It's, uh, um, if you don't see ammonia vapor, then either the, the ammonia is not vapor, which means it would be dissolved in water because uh, ammonia ice would just evaporate very quickly. Or otherwise, it would have to be somewhere else uh, that is that there is inhomogeneity in terms of its location on Jupiter, but then you also have to explain that. And it's really hard to explain that if all the ammonia is just vapor. Is that a normal phenomenon that you would see on Earth where ammonia is in water? Well, on Earth, we just don't have much ammonia. On Earth, the stable form of nitrogen is nitrogen gas, N2. On Jupiter, because there's so much hydrogen, because the atmosphere is mostly hydrogen, because of that, there's a lot more ammonia. You know, nitrogen doesn't bind with itself, but because there's hydrogen, it goes NH3 and uh, forms ammonia. That's, that's the difference between Jupiter's atmosphere and Earth's. Earth's is mostly nitrogen, Jupiter's is mostly hydrogen. And so you don't actually have the amount of ammonia in Earth's atmosphere to compare. But as I said, thermodynamically, it's not usually the most stable expectation. You have some ammonia dissolving in water, but you need to have a lot of ammonia to have it be most favorable in cold conditions. And you wind up trying to find, because ammonia is soluble in water, but it's not like that soluble. And so you wind up having to find some way in warm conditions to stuff it in without. Sorry, ammonia is actually really soluble in cold conditions, but you need to have a lot of it. Whereas in warm conditions, it's uh, yeah, just hard, hard to get the ammonia in there. So where do you want to go with these findings? Kind of like determining the lightning and where it's at and the role of ammonia in this process? The next interesting question is trying to get more of an overall handle on the circulation. Because there's basically a lot of evidence to show that this two-layer model, that there's ammonia cloud and the water cloud, that this is an oversimplification in the sense that the two cloud layers and the convection within them interacts with one another. But we don't really have a great model as to how. There's a lot of pieces that are pointing us towards ammonia dissolved in water. But it's still not clear how to get a lot of ammonia dissolved in water. Your work shows that it's possible in this narrow range, but, uh, you know, is that really enough and what happens to it? But so between the lightning, between uh, and the general observation, we're pretty sure it's happening somehow. And more generally, it's, it really does, you know, the one thing you can actually see in real color in Jupiter are the clouds, and you have those complex cloud patterns, but it's not really, you know, the basic question is what are those clouds that we're seeing? Are they ammonia clouds or are they water clouds? And in a number of cases, we're, you know, not sure whether... All of them are ammonia. Most of them are ammonia, probably. But and you know which which ones are showing us a glimpse down deeper into Jupiter. And so it's really not a two-layer circulation that's connected in some sense. And then the other question is, what about deeper down? Because Jupiter doesn't have a surface; it doesn't have sort of an end point to how deep you can go. And so you wind up if you go deeper down, it gets so hot that particles like salt and metal and rock start to evaporate. And so that's one of the other directions to look at rock clouds, so in general. You have been listening to an interview with Yoro Yomov from Professor Jonathan Looney's lab. 
While in this lab, he studies Jupiter's properties and uses this information to explain observed lightning patterns. This interview has been brought to you by Candace Limper with Locally Source Science. You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Please let us know about your science news. Tweet us at FLX Science Radio or send us an email at locallysourcedscience at gmail.com. You can check out our podcast at locallysourcedscience.org. At that site, you can subscribe to new episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and other podcast apps. I'm Esther Rakusen for Locally Sourced Science. You just heard about the Juno space probe that is orbiting Jupiter and collecting information about the planet's atmosphere. One may wonder how the engineers that designed the space probe first got interested in designing spacecraft that would explore distant planets. Maybe some of those engineers were inspired by projects that they constructed when they were in elementary school. For our next interview, we'll hear from a local elementary school teacher who is introducing his students to the concept of designing and building simple machines. This past spring, Spencer Hill, together with his colleagues Kim Snow and Emily Graber, sent information packets and materials to their students at home so that they could design and build simple engineering projects. The endeavor was funded with a red and gold grant from the Ithaca Public Education Initiative. I recently spoke with Hill, a third grade teacher at Cayuga Heights Elementary School in Ithaca, to find out how his students carried out their projects after the school closed due to the COVID-19 pandemic. We did our physically distant interview in his backyard, so you might notice some insect, bird, and car sounds. Also, you'll notice that I refer to him as Spence, which is the same name that his students use. He started out by talking about how he and his fellow third grade teachers decided to apply for the grant to fund the engineering projects. We decided that we wanted to, uh, during the shutdown, during the COVID-19 shutdown, we, we left, we finished school in March, March the 13th. And by, I think it was sometime in May, we were thinking we should be sending something home that was perhaps a bit more meaningful than just packets and you know we were doing online videos that kids could watch and doing math projects on their books and sending home you know we, we were being creative and doing fun things but we we felt like it would be nice to have something um, that they were lacking in the classroom which was an actual building designing and building project. It turns out that the Ithaca City School District has been developing the engineering projects in recent years. Once Spence and his team received funding from IPEI to pay for the materials that the kids would need, they sent the projects home to the students. Yeah, I mean, the the district actually very helpfully about, I'm thinking maybe three or four years ago, they started putting out a project every month. Um, This obviously when we're back in school. Um, uh, It was a design and build STEM project Um, which is largely where we got these projects that we sent home from that list. I asked Spence if the projects fit into the third grade science curriculum. It fits into the, yeah, it fits into the curriculum in third grade. It fits into almost any curriculum, really, because it's, it's, it's about the process of teamwork and um, designing something, planning something with your, with your teammates, um, 
you know, which can cause arguments too along the way. So it's about it's about relationships that you have with your peers, the third graders. It's, you know, it's tough for three or four eight-year-olds to sit around a table and try and figure out whose idea is going to be the one they're going to try. Unfortunately, because school was shut down, the students would not be able to work with their fellow third graders in teams. So their teachers encouraged their students to work with their family members at home. What we did try and modify a little bit in the in the project that we sent, the projects that we sent, was um, to have them involve their family as much as possible, or siblings, like you said, family members or siblings, to sort of test them, ask them what they thought might work, and if there was, you know, making it make a, a good estimate as to like, if you're trying to fly something, ask your family how far they think it might fly, keep that data, actually fly it, see the differences, those kinds of things. So we tried to introduce those kinds of concepts. The third grade teachers presented their students with four projects, a back scratcher, a hoopster, which is a type of flying object, an astronaut lander, and a bridge that has to support a cup of pennies. I then asked Spence how he and his colleagues introduced the idea of project design to their students. You know, with with our club, with our individual classes, we would you know we would have morning meetings and um, online, obviously um, via Google Meet, and um, so we would talk to them and just talk them through the projects. Um, you can obviously present your screen, you can show them things, um, and a lot of them we had because it was a, a partial year. We had already done some engineering projects in school, so it was an easier introduction. I mean, if we'd had to do it at the beginning of the year, having not really ever met the kids and having not done it building project or design project that would have been very hard I think but we'd already done um, three or four projects in the classroom before we shut down in March so they knew the process they knew what they were expected to do they'd already been had access to sort of li- a limited material supply which was a, a big part of the project was you know knowing that you only have x materials and you can't just go and grab something from the kitchen or your den or wherever and add to it you have to just use what you've got which was a huge part of it Um, and we talked about that a lot about you know the engineering cycle um, which is the you know ask imagine plan create improve and then back to ask if you're still if you still need to improve it again so um, and they, they they knew all that already so that that was definitely easier the engineering cycle has the step called improve, so I asked Spence what it is like to encourage the students to not just settle on their initial design, but try to improve it in some way. He said that it helped that the students learn this process when they were still in the classroom before the shutdown. We, we talked a lot about, you know, what could you do now to make it better, brainstorm, and then go back. You know, often we would go back the next day and say, okay, now... You know, like the newspaper tower is the one that jumps to mind. Lots of kids, you know, one. If once you've seen one team being really successful at it, you're obviously in the same room, which is not necessarily a real life situation. If you're a, in a competing engineering company trying to design something, you're not seeing your competitors' designs. But in this case, they could. You know, they could see the winning team and exactly what they'd done to make their tower, you know, two meters tall. And some people only had towers that were a few inches tall, literally, before they fell over. So. Um, then obviously when the redesign process was different because you can see the sort of winning project. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Locally Sourced Science, 
I'm Esther Rakusin, and I'm interviewing Spencer Hill, a third grade teacher at Cayuga Heights Elementary in Ithaca. He's talking about his experience teaching his students how to do simple engineering projects at home after school shut down this past March. I asked him to explain the learning targets for the design and build projects, which are also simple and were the same for each project. They are, I can think creatively and I can work to meet a challenge. You know, I've been you know, teaching for eight years, which is not actually that long in teaching really. Um, and I, I didn't really understand the concept of learning targets, I guess, when I first started. I didn't really know that was a thing you had to think about. Um, but then, you know, once you once you realize once you realize what the once you've established the learning target, it's much easier to teach something because then you can work backwards from there. If you're you know, if you're struggling with something like teaching a math concept, you can say, Okay, well what do they have to end up knowing? And you can say, Okay, how do I get them there? It can either be via you know, a worksheet, a lesson, obviously, a game, you know, it can be many different things. Um, in this case, we we wanted to keep the learning targets the same for each one. I think each all four challenges have the same learning targets, which, as you said, are I can think creatively and I can work to meet a challenge. Um, in the classroom, probably one of those learning targets would also have been I can work with my peers in a productive way or in a collaborative way, something like that. But obviously that was not one that was applicable remotely again the kids are used to seeing learning targets presented to them every day so it was just the sort of to keep the educational process going because of today's show theme of astronomy i asked spence to describe the kids experience building the astronaut lander here he explains that the object is um to have to build something that you can drop off a table onto the floor that has a character in it it could be a you know a plastic cat or a dog or a person whatever it happens to be and it has to you have to imagine that person is real and that they're not going to get injured in that process so they can't they can't slam into the ground and they can't fall out of their module what the kids were given to work with was one in one six by four index card uh, a, a large plastic cup um, a little plastic character in which case we bought a big sort of bulk sort of math counters type um, box of characters and they also get three straws three drinking straws um, one piece of masking tape which is three feet long um, a pair of scissors they needed um, which we did send home as well and um, four index cards the um, smaller ones five inches by three inches so those are the all the all the materials that they had the first step um, was to think about how your materials could help you make a really good landing module to plan and sketch your design first so you don't waste your materials which is key because they don't get extra materials they can only use what they from that list that they're given for that project um, and then the, the ultimate I guess the ultimate goal was to make a landing module that keeps your astronaut safe when it lands your astronaut needs to remain inside the landing module so that was the key those are the key things a soft landing and safety for the astronaut a lot of kids can make something you know you give them the cup you give them a little plastic character they put the kid in the cup they drop it off the table that's not that hard but the, the hard part is making it land softly and so, you know, just sort of defying the gravitational effect of something landing obviously hard on the, on the ground, but also um, not having it topple over and the character fall out. Then, once the kids could see what materials they had, this is what they did. Um, it, was, it was very exciting. I mean, we made it, we made it a, a fun, you know, like engineering share time or something. I can't remember, we didn't call it anything particular, but just it was just really fun to see them. They were very excited. They all came there with holding their projects up to the camera and really excited to show 
what had happened and we talked about the data that they'd recorded. I asked Spence what it was like for the kids to build at home and how building projects individually was different from building with a team in the classroom. Sending at home is a different thing. You don't have those pressures. So one of, that was sort of one of the few advantages, I would say, of, of um, remote teaching was that the, the social things do sort of evaporate a little bit. I mean, they miss their friends, but also if there's any kind of shyness or lack of confidence, and kids are often, those kids are often much more comfortable in their own homes than they are at school, so they might actually excel. To conclude, I asked Spence whether he and his fellow third-grade teachers plan to introduce these design and build projects to their new students. I think we will continue. I think being outside is going to be key, so it might be that we can do... um, you know, because obviously everyone, the kids are going to need to be further apart from each other, probably working solo on a project, um, but they can see their peers around them. You know, their peers can be working, you know, six, seven, eight feet away. Um, so there will be that sense of sharing. To learn more about the Ithaca Public Education Initiative Red and Gold Grant for teachers that provided funding for the third grade design and build projects, go to IPEI.org. I'm Franny Alani, and you've been listening to Locally Sourced Science. Esther Rakuzin produced today's show and the interview of third-grade teacher Spencer Hill. Candace Limper produced the interview of graduate student Yuri Aglamov. Our theme music is from Joe Lewis, and other music is by Blue Dot Sessions. You can find all of our archived shows and subscribe to our podcast at locallysourcedscience.org. Tune in for our next show on Tuesday, October 13th. Science out!